Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 160th video cast, 150th podcast for the week ending November 10th, 2022. Uh, what a change of events today with the CPI number coming in lower than estimated uh, and the markets off to the races. So that which we have been preparing for uh, is now coming to pass. Uh, we'll kick it off with some media spots, but we have a number of AMA questions this week and uh, want to get through all that. So uh, first, I'd like to thank Phil Yin and Dalal Pektas for having me on CGTN America last night to discuss the election results, the market, Disney, uh, all the kind of exciting things. Definitely worth a listen. Want to thank Ellen Chang for including me in her article on thestreet.com yesterday regarding the election results, and also want to thank Chibuke Ogu for including me in his article on Reuters uh, last week. So um, we're going to start with a few quotes of the day uh, to kick off the week. The first one from John Templeton, the time of maximum pessimism is the best time to buy and the time of maximum optimism is the best time to sell. We saw the put call ratio uh, go up to 130 this week. Uh, which is basically a bunch of retailer people buying insurance in the hole. And sure enough, uh, we were set up to get this type of reaction and the positioning. I like Robert Arnott. He's a small cap uh, legend in investing. What is comfortable is rarely profitable. Uh, you know, this, you know, we've certainly been through uh, some discomfort for sure, but I think we're now phasing into the comfort period of the process. Uh, and, uh, and when we get to the excitement period, uh, we'll, we'll be laying off to all the excited people. But, um, and then finally, Peter Lynch, and I think today's a perfect example. The key to making money in stocks is not to get scared out of them. When you own high quality businesses that are cash generative trading at 50 or 25% of intrinsic value, you don't really get bothered by the short term volatility other than the mark to market. If you have outside money and explaining, uh, going through each company and explaining what you own, uh, it really makes no difference because, it, you know, the, the three killers that I've always covered, ladies, liquor and leverage. I learned that from Warren Buffett. If you're not on leverage and you know what you own, the short term volatility does not affect you. You, you It doesn't change the percentage of the business that you own. Uh, they're not going to do a highly dilutive raise if they're generating cash. Uh, so there's nothing to really think about. It, all you have to do is extrapolate normalized earnings. You know, why are they on the operating table because of exogenous events if they're a high quality business with a double digit return on invested capital? And um, and then, you know, you know, normalize the earnings when they, the temporary impairment uh, resolves itself. What will that look like? And then what's a normal range of multiple and rinse and repeat over and over and over. And that's how you do multi baggers over time. So uh, that's the story. Here's the CPI print, the headline inflation from today. Uh, as we've said in the last few months that, you know, July print was the peak and it's been coming down ever since. No one really believed it last month until we got this month, came in at 7.7 .7 versus 8% uh, year on year. And the big uh, wins were really uh, the areas that we've been talking about uh, leading up to this. Used cars and trucks were down 2.4%. Uh, you had apparel was down. That was good to see. Even medical care services came down. Uh, utility pipe uh, gas service was down 4.6%, energy services down 1.2%. Uh, so uh, all in all, very good thing. But here's the key impact is the Fed fund futures, the target rate probabilities for 
the December 14th Fed meeting uh, have now collapsed. They were at um, uh, yesterday, there was a 43% chance or one week ago, there was a 48% chance of a 75 basis point hike in December. That has collapsed to a 14% chance as of right now. And there was a 52% chance of a 50 basis point hike. Uh, that has uh, risen to 85%. So now it looks like, you know, fifth, probably 50, 25, and then done. Uh, or pause, but basically done. And the market is sniffing this out today. And that's why you're seeing the S&P up 175 points. Uh, and the Dow up over a thousand points. So uh, good news today. Finally, we've been waiting and, and here it is. Uh, this is very important. This is uh, CPI has risen alongside with record fiscal expansion. So, you know, on the one hand, you could blame the Fed for transitory and being too late. On the other hand, they were fi fighting a two fire battle. Uh, yes, there was structural inflation, but at the same time, you had all of these bills passed, the Inflation Reduction Act, $750 billion. The eviction moratorium was extended. The student loan cancellation was a few hundred billion. Uh, and the uh, Build Back Better was $1.7 the American Rescue Plan. So, you know, $2.5 trillion over the last year and a half, call it $3 trillion if you want to round up, uh, while trying to raise rates, it's tr like trying to fight a forest fire with a single fire extinguisher. That j just no matter how much tightening they did, they couldn't get it done. And guess what? With the election results, it, it looks highly probable that the Republicans have taken control of the House by a lower margin than anticipated, but they squeaked in. So they'll be able to block any taxing or spending deals. And then the Senate is up for grabs, but that would, you know, that's just whipped cream. It, it really doesn't change the gridlock outcome, some more committees and different things. It's, it's valuable, but um, basically mission accomplished on the gridlock. And then as far as the election, you've got uh, Nevada and uh, the runoff in Georgia, which will determine if they get from 49 to 51 or not. Um, moving right along, the biggest story in my view that we've been talking about uh, Alibaba and emerging markets is basically a leveraged currency trade. Well, the good news is that now the dollar has come down about 5% in the last six weeks uh, with the biggest drop in the last few days. And we expect it's kind of broke through this support here uh, to get some follow through there. And if that's the case, uh, we're going to see, as I said, emerging markets in China be the trade of 2023 and beyond. Uh, no question about it in my view. Uh, dollar on pace for its worst day since December 2015. Woohoo! Uh, and then um, terminal rate. This is a zero hedge, kind of confirming what we're saying. Tumbling below 5%, now 4.88%. So remember, it was at 4.6 from the last dot plot. Then it went to 5% when uh, Powell decided to get super hawkish at the last press conference. Now it's back to 4.8%. And my guess is it ends somewhere at four, four, six, or four, five. We'll see. Strip away housing from core and CPI fell for the first time since May of 2020. So negative. That's good to see. And um, and this is um, after midterm elections. We've covered this ad infinitum. This is the most seasonally beneficial period of the year. Um, in that um, after a midterm election, you usually get a 19% drawdown in this year of the cycle. And then you get on average 18% in the 12, 12 months after the midterm election. So uh, that's good news. But I think the money is going to be made 
uh, under the surface, like you could buy the indices and you'll do fine. But if you really want to outperform, you need to be finding the, the high quality businesses that are trading at discounts to intrinsic value. And now that things are normalizing with rates, with the dollar, with that, et cetera, uh, there's going to be a lot of money to be made. Uh, this was uh, my friend Tiho sent this over to me. This is from Fundsmith over the, in the UK. And basically what this is, <clears throat> is it shows that industries with poor returns on invested capital uh, tend to remain poor over time. Um, and, and the point that uh, the author is trying to make is buying cheaper, lowly rated does not make them good companies. Uh, and they show which sectors over time have the highest return on invested capital and how they tend to stay that way. And if you remember, we've covered many times, uh, Munger has said, you know, if a company's making mid-teens um, uh, return on invested capital over time, it'll be very difficult for the stock to produce returns less than that over time. Um, and it will also be very hard for the company to make returns more than that. So let's assume a company's doing, you know, 20% return on invested capital for, you know, 10 years. Uh, that's a stock that should, on average, double every three and a half years or so, rule of 72. Uh, and let's say it hasn't moved for five years. Well, th there's going to be a catch up to that over time. And that's what the case that we've made consistently with Alibaba is that you've had, um, you know, double digit return on capital for a decade. And we found ourselves in this rare opportunity that we could buy it at 2014 prices. But you've had, uh, you know, 800% increase in earnings power. You've had a double digit return on capital for, uh, you know, decade plus. You've had 500% increase in earnings. Uh, so that that will play catch up. The, the, the triggers that had to happen were obviously the dollar needs to weaken. Uh, and then number two, uh, some normalization, which which we're which we're getting to, and uh, and that's positive. So, uh, but by sector, which is interesting, pharmaceuticals, biotechnology, as you know, we have a basket of, of biotech that's one of our three largest positions. So uh, we do agree that as a basket over time, that has the highest return on invested capital on average over twenty percent, twenty five percent in the last twenty years, uh, in the most recent twenty years, and prior to that, about twenty percent. So. Uh, we like that bet. We think that's going to be a monster, just like it was from 2016 to 2018, where it bounced 140% off the lows. And with a little juice, it could be a lot more. Um, and then um, and then you look at the household personal care products is the second group. That's like the Colgates of the, of the world, the Coca-Colas of the world that have been monster compounders over the years. Uh, software and services. So, you know, you look at uh, Alibaba with with the cloud service, not only expanding in China, which we've covered and um, uh, all over the world now. We'll talk about that in a bit. And then some of the worst performing businesses, uh, energy, uh, transportation, communicate, uh, telecom and utilities. Um, so, you know, you only go into these type of low quality businesses when they've got become so dislocated, you could take advantage of the um, special situation and uh, versus if you're just wanting to buy high quality businesses when they're on sale and let them just compound for you over time and pay no taxes. Uh, these are the groups that you want to be more focused on uh, these top five or six. So thanks to Tiho for sending that over. This is interesting. There's been a lot of talk about small cap stocks in a high inflation, high rate environment. I don't I think we're going to be in an above 
trend inflation environment uh, and um, probably uh, more along the mean in terms of rates, which looks high relative to the, you know, the, the near term re recency bias. But um, if you look at the late 70s, which is considered a horrible period for stocks, basically the, the 70s in general were sideways the entire year. Uh, and you look at inflation was 9% in 73, 12% in 74, 7% in 75, 5% in 76, 7% in 77, 9% in 78, 14% in 79. Well, during those five years from 75 to 79, U.S. small cap stocks were like Cooper Standard, <laughs> uh, were um, the best performers of all asset classes during that period. Uh, and uh, they had a 53% return in 75, 57 in 76, 25 in 77, 23 in uh, 78, and uh, 43 in 79. So that's a place to start to look. We're not going to have, I don't think this, this high level of inflation uh, persist. But uh, I do think small caps and small cap value have been left for dead. Uh, and there's some, some opportunity. I like to play it through a special situation because I'm willing to do the work under the hood. But you could even play it uh, with an ETF. Obviously, uh, as always, go to hedgefundtips.com. Click on terms. This is opinion, not advice. I don't know your situation. Uh, but that is standing out. And... Um, Next is, uh, this shows the Hang Seng Index relative to the Dow. Uh, you can see it goes through periods of outperformance and underperformance. So, um, and it's really correlated to the dollar again. But uh, in the periods that it was outperforming, the dollar was weakening, as you see the Hang Seng dramatically. The, the point is that the Hang Seng and the Dow Jones Industrial Average were at the same price, 8,000 points in 1988. 1998 and today they've diverged such that the Dow is at whatever 33,000 I don't know what it is today uh, but the Hang Seng is at 15,000 so while they've mostly they they've always reverted back to kind of par they, they've always converged over time even if they diverged massively in the short term um, and they overshoot on both sides um, it's basically saying that over time, you're either going to see the Dow come down dramatically to where the Hang Seng is, which is, uh, I, I, I wouldn't take that bet, uh, or more likely the Hang Seng then uh, reemerge and uh, uh, converge with the Dow, which is also probably going up and then eventually overshoot the Dow. So what is the Hang Seng at 15,000 today versus the Dow at 33? You know, you could see a situation where the Dow's at uh, you know, 40,000 in a couple of years and uh, or a few years and the Hang Seng is at 60,000. Uh, and that wouldn't surprise me in the least. So, um, you know, visuals are sometimes helpful. Speaking of visuals, if you remember in early October, the uh, S&P was down at, you know, 36, 3700. And I put out the this um, image here of the Dow uh, of the S&P 500. And I also brought up a couple of uh, analogs that it was very much mimicking. And now we're potentially starting to see that play out. Oh, now the dollar's down more than 2%. Yay. Uh, so this was 1966, if you remember. And this was what I was pointing to. This type of bottom after a huge run off of a dislocation. Uh, and then it worked back up to new highs. 
and I think we're probably on this path. This is a more realistic path, the 66 path. But you also had the 53 path, which you had this monster run during the inflationary period, which I've drawn a lot of analogies to this, uh, where you did get this kind of double bottom thing. And then you not only made, made it back to new highs, but you kept persisting. And this is not off the table. It's going to depend what the Fed does. Uh, and how things play out. But uh, it's amazing to see these starting to play out because, you know, when I originally showed them, in, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I think people were scratching their heads like that'll never happen. We're going to hell in a handbasket, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that just um, um, remains to be seen. Um, so that's that. A couple headlines. Uh, Ukraine Zelensky sets conditions with genuine for genuine peace talks with Russia. Uh, the other thing that happens with the Republican Congress is the funding to Ukraine is going to slow down. Any type of spending, including Ukraine, is going to slow down. And that's going to bring parties to the table. Russia's going to know it. Ukraine's going to know it. Uh, and some of the ridiculous requests from both sides uh, are going to get um, uh, a dose of, of realism uh, moving forward. And uh, that bodes well to potentially getting something done. It also bodes well, we saw today, that Xi is going to meet with uh, Biden in Bali uh, and discuss the Russian war. I think they both share a common interest in wanting that to discontinue. Uh, and China has the leverage on Russia, and we may have some level of leverage on Ukraine, considering we're financing a lot of their defense. Uh, so, um, you know, if that happened, you'd see the floor drop out of oil. No one's positioned for that because they're all looking at the strategic petroleum reserve and China reopening. But um, be open minded. It, it could it could cut a completely different way that no one's prepared for. Uh, Fed and other central banks could deliver a Santa pause rally for global stocks as they dial back the size of hikes. So that was two days ago. Uh, now, today, that looks like it's increasingly likely. Uh, 50 in December and 25. Now we do get another CPI print in December, the day before that Fed meeting. I mean, if, if it did collapse, like there's a lot of data going around that shows like once you get that first turn, it's very small, like we got uh, this month. And then like the next print is just, it falls off the map. Like it just collapses. And if you got like a collapsing print the day before, it's not out of the question, they could go 25. Um, they've been so hell bent on, you know, being super hawks after they were super transitories that they're overcompensating and oversteering, but, um, certainly not out of the question, particularly now you're seeing layoffs all over the place. So, uh, China stock traders are clinging to every sign of hope they see, uh, was the best. Let's see. Uh, China set for gains this month has positive news drives trades. Uh, that's related to the reopening. It's related to the auditing. It's related to uh, all the different things that we've been discussing. Um, so sentiment is starting to change. That's the, that's the message of that. Uh, City and Morgan Stanley end bearishness on emerging market currencies. Uh, if they're right, and we think they will be, that's going to be a monster for emerging market equities. Uh, and China is the biggest weight. So uh, basically, emerging market currency had the biggest drop since 2008. That's why emerging market stocks had the biggest drop. And um, uh, I think what we're going to find is an abrupt rebound. And, uh, and that's going to uh, be magnified uh, with the leverage of equities. Alibaba's international arm is spending millions to expand into South Korea. They're, they're expanding all over the place. As a matter of fact, I think when all is said and done, I think Alibaba's international business is going to be much bigger than Amazon's international business. 
particularly when it comes to the cloud and, uh, and, and maybe even e-commerce as well. Uh, China traders look beyond COVID zero pledge to snap, to snap up stocks. Uh, da, 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 da. China stocks notch trillion dollar gain on hopes of reopening better U.S. ties. So they're meeting in Bali. Uh, China stock frenzy enters overdrive on hopes that the worst is over. So this was, uh, I think, um, Chinese Hong Kong stocks post the best week since 2015 last week. And if you remember uh, that period, um, subsequent years was one of Alibaba's biggest moves. So, you know, everything's pointing in the right direction. Now the pieces are starting to fall into place. Those of you who have been patient will be amply rewarded. Uh, and um, U.S. audit inspectors finish on-site China work ahead of plan. This is a big, potentially a big catalyst because they left uh, on Saturday much quicker than anticipated, saying their on-site work was done. So now uh, it's usually a couple of weeks and then we should get some formal notification, which could be a huge catalyst, uh, provided it's good news, which we expect it will be. Why would you end quickly uh, and not, you know, leak a press release that uh, they were uncooperative or something else uh, if it was going to be bad news? Uh, China to offer BioNTech COVID shot to expats. This was another big deal. So my guess is uh, they've been looking at the data in UK, Singapore, and the US. And once they see that the mRNA works for the expats, I wouldn't be surprised if they start to offer it to their own population, particularly the people over 80. Once they have all of them vaccinated, uh, then I think it's off to the races. I think they're going to open up and, uh, and rock and roll. Um, Okay, China, President Xi pledges to further open China's market, offering big opportunities to the world ahead of trade fair. So he's changing his tune now that he's he's secured his power domestically. Uh, now he's trying to attract back foreign investors. Uh, Beijing Marathon returns, so that doesn't sound like a closed uh, city. Xi Jinping has secured his power at home. Now he's stepping back out onto the international stage. U.S. audit inspection of Chinese company in Hong Kong ends. Uh, Xi Jinping urges global tech cooperation as IBM, Intel, Cisco CEOs attend China's internet conference. So now all of a sudden it's open arms. Let's go, let's go to work. China expands financing tool to support ailing developers. So this is all happening in the last you know, week, uh, week and a half since the China National Congress. China hopes of, hopes of China easing COVID restrictions further take hold as market observers detect a delicate shift in tone. We saw those uh, rumored posts last week. We'll probably start to see more of that work its way through in coming weeks. China developer stocks and bonds buoyed by hope for central bank monetary support as Beijing expands bond program. So they're now taking all the action. Uh, Alibaba will report on November 17th. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Um, I was surprised how well they were able to perform last quarter, uh, given that half the country was shut down. Uh, and um, so, so I'm expecting relatively positive things this quarter, which could be good. China's new leaders back to a more targeted COVID zero approach. So they're trying to dial it back a little bit. Um, Chinese and U.S. climate envoys hold informal talks, potentially setting the stage for Biden G meeting during G20 summit. That seems confirmed today that they are in fact meeting. And I think Biden said as much yesterday. Uh, moving on to the auto supplier, Cooper Standard. Uh, put out a note this week of basically, uh, for lack of a better word, it's a poison pill so that um, unsolicited offers. This is very important to me because the two big risks that I felt going in 
Uh, one was that management would do a dumb deal like Tenneco's board did when Apollo came in and took the company out at a 20% premium. And you see here it's at $20. And what you're not seeing here is that this is a highly cyclical business with massive opera operating leverage. And effectively what happened was in the midst of the tumult, like you saw in 2002 and 2008, and again during the pandemic, uh, the board blinked and sold to Apollo for pennies on the dollar and stole, in my estimation, at least $40 or two-thirds of the value of the stock. Uh, because this would have, over the next three years, four or five years, worked its way back up to $60 and beyond. Um, as demand came back, you know, th we've gone through it, 13.1 years average uh, age of a car, uh, two years of pent-up demand, semiconductors just rolling in. Uh, the only reason they're slightly different, Tenneco, is because they deal predominantly with ICE, whereas if the move to EV accelerates, um, Cooper will actually make more money versus Tenneco would get hurt by such an abrupt move. But it's not going to be meaningful enough in the next five years. Tenneco would generate huge amounts of cash. So by adopting this poison pill, uh, two things happen. And I, I, I like why they did this. Um, I would say the number one takeaway is that a management and board concerned about their equity going to zero uh, from not being able to refinance would not spend their time on trying to fend off low bids uh, or change of controls in their equity. That would be the last of their concerns. Their number one focus would be, uh, do I get to keep my job if we go, to, go through bankruptcy? Uh, that's not what they're focused on. So uh, it gives me a level of confidence that they're, uh, they, they have solutions. And, and by the way, I, you know, I was kind of doing uh, the numbers on the uh, cash, the ABL, uh, the, uh, the tooling money that's owed from the um, uh, OEMs on the balance sheet. You know, when you add all that up and the balance sheet flexibility, you know, you're, you're 450, 500. Uh, if the, even if they did nothing, let's say they get no extension or refinancing before the end of the year or before February when they need the, uh, you know, to, to get ahead of the going, going concern. Uh, it's not clear to me that the auditors would get away with doing a going concern and tripping the covenants on the, um, other layers of the capital structure because they would they could simply say we can pay the whole thing off from cash at the end of the year and our operations are dramatically improving from negative 10 million EBITDA to plus 20 they'll probably do 35 or 40 uh, this quarter uh, I don't know that the auditors could get away with doing a going concern in 2023 in let's say they paid it off out of cash let's say they got no refinancing done for the next 12 months uh, and no extension done and then they took, you know, 300 something million dollars, paid off the November uh, term loan. Uh, and then they had the other one coming due in mid 2024. Certainly in February 2024, that's a slam dunk going concern. There's nothing to even think about. Uh, but for 2023, in theory, even if they got nothing done before February, I think there's a case to be made that a going concern would be premature. 
my sense is from this action, which was a surprise action, which took one of my biggest risks off the table that the board would accept a dumb deal for 15 or 20 or $30 per share uh, is now off the table. So, so likely we're going to have the opportunity to ride this thing out uh, until it gets back to normalized EBITDA and, you know, earn six, seven, eight dollars a share three, five years out uh, and, and can make some serious money on this. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, basically, the other thing that this highlighted is they put it in the context of preserving the value of the tax benefit. I actually know something about this because um, at my first hedge fund, I became COO of a public company we, we controlled. And um, my job was to sell off some assets and use the cash to buy an asset manager. And I introduced, you know, interviewed about 100, saw what worked, what didn't. But uh, the asset manager we bought had a huge net operating loss uh, tax benefit. And when we bought it, the downside was rather than being able to use all of that in one year. So let's say, you know, Cooper Standard earns 150 million bucks in 2023 or 2024 from my lips to God's ears. Um, and it was all taxable. Well, they could use that tax asset, meaning the previous losses from the pandemic against that. So rather than paying whatever it is, $40 million in taxes, uh, and having to use cash to pay those taxes, they, they have to pay zero taxes because they can use it all in, in one year. Uh, versus if you have a change of control, it spreads it out over, you know, there's a calculation, but it's like 20 or 30 years. So you basically be using one or $2 million a year uh, of the tax asset, which, which devalues it. And if you think about it in real terms, 130 million, 20% local plus, you know, state and all the other things, let's call it 30, $40 million. That's $2 a share in cash value. So the stock's trading at $7 or whatever it's trading. Uh, you net out that asset. You're, you know, first off, you could net out the cash, but whatever. I mean, you, it's unbelievable where this is trading at. And it's only on the artificial nature of this short-term refinancing uh, or extension situation that, that they'll work through, which I don't even think is short-term. I think it's a 12-month situation, but... They'll probably get something done in the three months just so they don't have to argue with their auditors is my guess. But, um, um, you know, this is another benefit that very few people are looking at is the $2 worth of cash value of taxes that won't have to be paid in the next two years that goes straight to the bottom line uh, to earnings. So uh, and into expansion and, and, and potentially into buybacks if we really get the hockey stick operating leverage that uh, I think we will. So, um so that, that was that. I mean, in simple terms, it's just a poison pill. You can go through the complications of what, what it is and how it works. But um, the key is preservation of that. And I think more than that, it's a deterrent for someone to come in with a Tenneco deal that um, uh, would, would just be a dumb deal. But part of the reason that I initially invested in the company was because uh, – I looked at the board and their background, and these guys are operators from industrial companies, Wabco, Johnson Controls, high-quality operators, and they all had skin in the game, meaning they were all buying stock in the open market, and most of which was at double or triple what we paid for. So they were buying at $10 and $15. We were buying in the fives. Uh, and um, so they want to they make money as well. And third, uh, they've 
been consistently respectful of equity. If you look at the share count over the last 10 years, uh, it stayed basically where it is. So they're not willy-nilly financial engineers screwing everyone with the equity. They're very respectful of the equity and they incentivize management on the basis of return on invested capital. That's a very, very rare thing. So these are high quality people that got caught in a, in a short-term thing and you couldn't ask for a better group of people to work, work our way out of it. So uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic that I've now taken what I thought was a bigger risk than the refinancing risk was a dumb deal risk uh, that many boards do under pressure because they're emotional day traders like everyone else and they get caught up in the, the world is ending versus just taking a step back and looking. This is a normal cyclical behavior. Every recession, this type thing happens. Uh, and eventually it works back up to, to, to new, uh, new highs and everything else. And in nominal terms, uh, new, new earnings power. So um, that's that. Moving right along, the long run stock market and sentiment results are article of the week. I brought this back. And for those of you who've been with me for a while, you've seen this chart a couple of times before, and it continues to hold true to today. So uh, this, I put this article out at 6 a.m. before the inflation print. Uh, and I said, well, it feels like it's been a year of persistent Murphy's Law for the stock market. Sometimes it makes sense to just step back and look at the facts. What could go wrong did go wrong. War, geopolitics, hurricanes, supply chains, government policy actions, regional pandemic, persistent Fed policy errors. But we may be coming to the tail end of that narrative. Little did I know the tail end would be two hours later, although I had some inkling, but, you know, <laughs> you never know. Uh, Murphy's Law, nothing. Okay. So when you look at the feature chart above, the words that come to mind are the long run, a uh, great song written by Don Henley and Gre Glenn Frey from the Eagles, recorded 1979, hit number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. And the salient ly lyrics are, you can go the distance, we'll find out in the long run, we can handle some resistance, et cetera, et cetera. And we've certainly handled the resistance like champs, and now we're, we're uh, moving on to the long run. As I've stated since the pandemic lows, we are only midway through a secular bull market driven by millennials' housing and family formation. The same demographic conditions existed in 1982 to 2000, as well as 1953 to 1968. We are having some short-term growing pains, but we'll power through for many more years until this largest portion of, the, of our productive population ages to 40 years old and slows down their spending. So... Um, these are the same period. You had these breakouts in 1953 to 1968. That was uh, 15 years. Then you had this breakout in 1982 to 2000. That was 18 years. And uh, you had four consolidation periods. We've had one, two, we're on our third, which would be the equivalent of that 1994 period, which was a similar situation with the Fed. They tightened too fast and then they pivoted and you had five more years of the run. We've talked about that a lot. Um, and uh, and even in the 63 to 68, you had one final consolidation period before new highs as well. So um, so we're only nine years in compared to 18 and 15. And um, and we think we probably got another 10 if millennials are 31 now. So nine years. It's so early 1930s. I'd start to get a little more worried. Um, uh, OK, so. The average age of the 72 million millennials is 31 right now. That's the green circle below. You can see why that's important is this is a fat group, meaning there are a lot of them, even more than the baby boomers right now, uh, which is this blue circle. So you can see the last time we had a 31-year-old population segment this large was also midway into a secular bull market 30 years ago, around 1992. That's when these folks right here 
were 31 years old, which was right up here, about halfway through. You'd been about nine years in, 91, 92 is right here, and then you had a second leg. Uh, same exact story. And um, spending drives outcome in an economy that's 70% con consumption based. Now, other factors. I can't tell you whether the CPI print will be hot or cold today or where the market will be by 4 p.m., but we can start to look at what would bode well as we move into year end and beyond. So, assuming we got a negative, a bad print or a good print, these things still hold true. So, first and foremost was you had a lot of selling this week because of the crypto meltdown from this guy who was deemed as, quote, the next Warren Buffett. And I said it's worth keeping in mind sooner or later, Charlie Munger is eventually right in all of his key themes. One of his key themes was Bitcoin is worthless and uh, crypto is rat poison. Uh, it's an investment in nothing, says Charlie Munger. Sooner or later, this guy is always right. Uh, he'll also be right on China in the due course of time. If you click here, you'll see a Q&A session from his Daily Journal uh, annual meeting when someone asked him about China and he explains why he's in China and why he's not worried about the short-term noise. Um, the second thing, the election, while not resolved, is pointing toward a gridlock outcome with Republicans taking control of the House with 225 seats. Democrats could potentially remain in the Senate. Unknown comes down to whether Laxalt can pull off Nevada, whether Walker can pull a rabbit out of the hat in Georgia runoff. Republicans currently have 49 and need those two wins to gain control. While the market was positioned for a red wave, they got a red puddle so far. Puddle or not, it still achieves the same end. Any future tax or spending bills will be held up. This means the Fed will no longer be putting out two fires, uh, supply-driven inflation and profligate spending at the same time. The former, supply-driven inflation, is aggressively working its way through the system as supply shortages and transport normalizes. The latter, profligate spending, was a tsunami of fuel on the fire that the Fed had limited ability to overcome, $1.7 trillion in the Build Back Better and $750 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act. I discussed this in detail last night on CGTN America with Phil Yin, thanks to Phil and Dewell Pactus. Three, the change in the power dynamic in Congress could also lead to greater pressure from Russia and Ukraine to come to the table for a negotiated settlement as aid weaponry spending to backstop the Ukraine's defense is likely to be reduced moving forward. Any resolution would lead to a drop in energy prices and a tailwind for risk assets. One brick of uncertainty would be removed from the wall of worry. Four, Chair Powell is accomplishing what he set out to do with his aggressive tightening. He has wiped out high valuation tech companies with no earnings. SPACs, cryptocurrencies, and even started a slew of mass firings. You saw that in the continuing claims today as well. Uh, Meta's cut 13% of their sales force. Twitter cut 50%. Lyft cut 13%. Stripe cut 14%. Coinbase cut 18%. Shopify cut 10%. Snap cut 20%. Robinhood cut 31%. Tesla cut 10%. So uh, expect more pain to come for the economy. The question is, how much is already discounted into equity market prices? We'll find out in coming weeks. However, this chart can give us a clue that we covered last week. In last week's podcast video, video cast, we covered this chart, which shows that by the time earnings actually decline to their lowest, the stock market has often already recovered to new highs. So all of these geniuses saying earnings are going to go down another 10 to 15% might be right. But the, what follows is false, which is the market has to go lower. The market may have already discounted that, if you look at 1957, earnings were still at the top when equities were at the bottom. As earnings collapsed, the market was already recovering. By the time earnings uh, bottomed, 
A year and a half later, the S&P was well beyond new highs. As a matter of fact, 24% above the previous highs, 20% above the previous highs when the earnings bottomed after they collapsed some 16%. Uh, and it just goes on. Same in 1973, same in 1980, same in 1990, 2007, 2019, et cetera, et cetera. So we've also discussed the favorable seasonality following a midterm election year. Hat tip to Ryan Dietrich from the Carson Group for all the data. He's showing um, the good news is off the midterm lows. So our trough was down 25.4% for the S&P 500. Uh, the trough a year later is up on average 32.3%. So um, so that, that, that bodes pretty well looking, looking further out. Um, and then... We talked about the inflation stuff, the House and Senate stuff. That's all good stuff. This was the Nasdaq, which people are down the most on. But if you look at this high-low indicator that uh, Jay Capel over at Sentiment Trader via Seth Golden put out, uh, kind of shows that good things happen. And I think people are mistaken this this cycle. Everyone's thinking that this is the tech wreck all over because they're um, misguided by recency bias. But everyone's right about earnings, that growth is going to slow and we're going to be in a slowing economy. Uh, the cash generative tech companies are going to do quite well. Uh, as a matter of fact, they do better in a slow and growth environment, particularly now that they're being proactive about cutting costs and retaining their margins. Uh, so I think that people are mistaken. Long duration, meaning non-earning stocks that are promising earnings three to five years out, and actually cash generative tech, which is the bulk of the NASDAQ 100, uh, may surprise people. Everyone's been panic buying, chasing oil after the, the biggest move, and everyone's puking out uh, these companies that may wind up being the cash generators in 2023 that everyone looks to in a slowing environment when energy demand is is uh, uh, maybe a little bit less than anticipated in the U.S. and production is uh, uh, growing because the rig count is back up. Um this is what I was talking about on this M2 money supply forward 16 month forward shift. We've covered this chart before, but as I said, once you get to that peak, like we had today, the next print, it really starts to collapse. It's not like incremental. It, it just rolls over because I guess demand has to slow so much that it's just like look out below. <coughs> uh, so we may get a much better print than anticipated in December, which is a day before the next bed meeting, which would be pretty timely. Um, this was the put call ratio that I said yesterday. This got so high up to 1.3. Uh, that usually happens around bottom. tends to indicate short-term bottoms versus tops. And sure enough, that was a bottom. And then I said, this morning we'll find out if declining rents and used car prices will finally be reflected in CPI. And they absolutely were. And then you had Charles Evans in his exit interview saying it's time for the Fed to slow down. I guess that means now he can... Well, I'm not even going to say that. <laughs> I guess he can start buying stocks again. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it, it's time to stop tightening. But all right. Uh, credit spreads are coming down. That's a good thing. Uh, this is McClellan's summation on the NASDAQ. I wanted to focus on that because people are most negative on that. You can see when it was down here, it's often been uh, the time to buy 2015, 16, 2019, 2020, 2011 and 12, even 2008. Um, so that, uh, that may prove to bear out once again, uh, retail got really bearish again this week down to 25% bullish. Uh, so that was natural to have a bounce. 
And then um, fear and greed was at 53. Neutral, uh, people were confused. Let me just see the NAAIM because they published that midday. I want to see where managers were at 53. So they're still underweight. So they're going to have to panic buy this if they think it's it's going to uh, persist. Um, okay. So now want to move on to some of the questions of the week. Ask me anything questions because I missed a few of these. And um, okay. Drew Byrne says, <clears throat> Tom, you emphasize the importance of knowing when to get out of stock recently, which was really helpful. You described the example, re Cooper Standard, e.g. one-third on refinancing, one-third on reaching normal EBITDA, and one-third for longer-term appreciation. Can I assume you mean one-third of total stock balance at those times versus one-third the original investment amount to ensure maximum profit-taking? Um, I mean one-third of the shares, basically. Uh, that's how I think about it. Uh, and I don't know if we're going to get a refinancing or an extension or or whatever, but um, you know these are just kind of guidelines. They're not absolutes. You know, facts change as you go along. So you want to do have some some type of plan before you go to war, but um, you ha you also have to be flexible. You know, what's normal EBITDA? Is it, is it, you know, is it 420 million would, would i look at taking some off at 350 million yeah but if the business is improving it might be twice the business five years from now than it was in 2017 because their margins go up 20 percent because they're doing 30 percent uh of evs you know and they could have a huge moat in the ev business and actually have pricing power because no one else does it uh and all of a sudden it's a completely different business and it's a green business you know who knows all, all these kinds of things happen but um, I generally want to, um, I never get all into a stock at the same time and I never get all out of the stock. So, you know, um, I, think, I think this is a good line and I would think in terms of shares. So also with projected demographic change in China in five years time, in your opinion, would it be reasonable to have offloaded two thirds of BABA at good valuations by five years, then maintaining one third going forward uh, there, thereafter? Um, I'll probably be all out of uh, Baba within five years, uh, is my my best guess. Um, it, we'll have to see where it's valued. I mean, it's 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 one thing, you know, if it's valued at three hundred dollars, maybe I'll be holding a lot more of it. If it's you know, if it's, it's at four or five hundred dollars in three four years, you know, I might be more inclined. Uh, you know, I'll have to see what how the business is operating. What what does the business look like at that point? But um, I'd be more inclined if it's it's if it's more towards you know the fullest valuation that I can see right now. If the business has gotten much better, then I then I'd probably hold the tail on some of it. Uh, despite the demographic decline, presumably any remaining stock at five years should appreciate well after that due to expansion outside of China, barring any unexpected uh, shocks. Of course, for that reason, would you hold onto more than one third after five years? Uh, probably not, because the Chinese government just tends to to F everything up every three to five years. So we're coming out of their most recent F up uh, and you can count on them to F it up again in three to five years. So no, I just want to get to full value and get the hell out. Um, trying to be clear in my thinking on these points, really appreciate your fantastic informative uh, video cast, which have educated me on contrarian value investing and the importance of holding your nerve. Intermittent humor is appreciated too. Thanks. 
Best Drew Byrne. Thanks, Drew. I know you've been a loyal supporter. I appreciate all the constructive feedback over the years. Um, okay. Uh, Brian Maida asks, uh, AMA, what is your opinion of Baidu? I know you're bullish on Baba, but I haven't heard you mention Baidu. Baidu seems to have higher price targets from analysts at the least. While I know it's a different business and seems significantly less profitable than Baba. So look, they're all going to benefit from the tailwind of a lower dollar, okay, and money flowing back into emerging markets. So Baidu will be no exception. The question is, is what's a better business? And um, and where is the greater growth opportunity moving forward? So um, let's take a look at the financials. So Baidu is... Let's do this in dollars so I understand it. Okay, so Bayou's revenues basically have been flat for the last, you know, five years um, and maybe beyond if we have more data. I don't know if we do. So they're kind of like the Google of China and their gross margins are declining, you know, from... 78% now down to 48%. They got it as low as 41% a couple of years ago. Um, trying to make it so you guys can see all this. Um, well, I'll just have to explain it. Uh, they did lose... They lost money this year. Looks like about $1.8 billion. So it's a show me story. Uh, cash from operations. Again, it's been pretty much flat for 10 years. Cash flow positive. I mean, it's, it's okay. Uh, let's see, their return on capital has declined from, you know, 40s down to the 20s, down to the single digits well before COVID, and now it's the low single digits. So this is kind of a deteriorating business. Uh, it'll, it'll probably work, but I, I, I don't, it's not for me. I mean, why, why would I own this, you know, the fifth best when I could own the, the best? Um, if you want to argue with me, is Tencent a better business than Alibaba? I'll have that argument because that's a legitimate argument. Um, I just, I just want, I want the cloud business. I want the best cloud business. I want the first mover. I want the biggest share because I think that's where all the growth is, and that's Alibaba, and that's why I own Alibaba uh, in in much greater size than I would ever own Tencent. But Tencent is an unbelievable business, unbelievable capital allocators, more respectful of equity than the 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 folks running. Alibaba, but I just don't think they have the same growth runway uh, in the businesses that matter for the next five years that Alibaba does. But if I was going to double up on China with the second company, it would not be Baidu, it would be Tencent. Um, and that's that. And you compare 
you know, Baidu to Alibaba that has the double, double digit consistent returns on, on capital, uh, even through this tough environment, uh, and, 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 and the hockey stick operating leverage of business. You know, nothing's going to change dramatically with the Baidu business where their search business and advertising business is going to go through the roof overnight. It's going to go basically with GDP. Whereas Alibaba has international expansion, they have all the upside. So it's just much better business uh, and uh, they're equally beaten down. So uh, I'll take that side of it. Um, Nick asked, uh, Tom, hope you're well. W wondering if you could offer a 20-year-old who wants to own his own hedge fund soon. I'm currently 20 years old studying economics at University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. I've been listening to your podcast for over 10 months now. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, and have been watching the outside world of panic of Alibaba whilst you explain to everyone to remain calm as this one could be a big winner. I have learned more real world economics principles from listening to your podcast each week than in two years of university study. Before 30, I will own my own hedge fund. I'm passionate about the space and the benefits it can give to a person. You are in the place I desire to be. So I ask of you is what can I do to get started working for a hedge fund as soon as possible to learn the ropes and to trade and open my own soon would really appreciate a response from you. So Nick, I think, um, first off, thanks for the nice note. Uh, I did a whole hour on this. Uh, if you go to YouTube and just put in hedge fund tips with Tom Hayes and find this University of Bristol's Woman in Finance Society, um, I go through about an hour of what people that want to get into the business should do and should focus on. I think you'll find that helpful. And then if you have any questions after listening to that, um, uh, always happy to help, but uh, I think that's going to set you on the right direction. And, and for those of you who've been with me for a couple of years, you've heard the same answers, you know, 10 times. Uh, so, so you probably don't. Uh, lastly, I uh, want to get through a couple of quick things here. Basic materials earnings, the top 30. Uh, again, these are the companies people are chasing now. Earnings for next year are going to be, uh, they've come down in the last 60 days, down 5.5 and down 6.4%. For the top 30 weights but look at this the growth stocks which everyone hates the ibd 50 growth index uh carter just posted these uh cumulative earnings power for this year increased by 4.72 percent in the last 60 days while next year's earnings estimates rose 3.5 percent so while everyone's calling for the end of the world these growth companies equal weighted top 30 weights uh are um uh, earnings are going up and no one would expect that. And that's why we actually do the work under the hood. So we're not carried by emotions of, you know, talking heads, saying stuff without actually doing the work uh, and you can find opportunity. So uh, really interesting to see that. That was very useful. Want to um, go through this. We did the inflation. By the way, I just want to see where the rig count was last week. Uh, that comes out tomorrow. So we're at 770. We were at 790 before the pandemic, producing oil hands over fist. Um, so there, we're, we're, we're getting back up to that production level. And that's why I think you get any break on Russia, Ukraine, you're going to see uh, oil remain subdued, which will be good for inflation, economy, risk assets, etc. Uh, nothing really big here we need to also cover. Um, the only thing I would say is uh, China's CPI and PPI have been very subdued because of uh, shutdowns and slowdowns and crackdowns and all, all that fun stuff. But 
that's the bad news. The good news is it means they can print a hell of a lot of money if they want to and not have to worry about inflation. Uh, and we know that they've been stimulating and it's, you know, been found and felt in fits and starts with targeted lockdowns and blah, blah, blah. But if you get the vaccines going and you get a government that actually wants to recover, which it seems like they're now making all the motions, they've got all the runway they want to print money like crazy and juice this economy like they've done so many times in the past when they've overshot because uh, they don't have to worry about PPI or CPI in the same way uh, that the developed world would have to with um, with massive inflation. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, and uh, lastly, I'm going to go through a very good friend of mine sent me over one, two, three, four, five, six stocks he wanted me to look at. Now, he's a very good friend. And uh, so don't think you can send me six stocks and I'll do this every week. Uh, so for those of you who, oh, I, I do want to cover two things before we wrap up. And then if you want to stay on, you can hear how I think about these stocks. And if you want to peel out, uh, you've, you've already gotten the bulk of the podcast. But I do want to reemphasize this chart that I covered last week, which is earnings growth estimates for 2023. While everyone is panic buying into energy after it's already moved, we were buying it in 2020 when no one wanted it. Um, and now everyone wants it. Uh, consumer, they're going to have the worst earnings power next year of negative 12.1% uh, versus consumer discretionary, which you can't give away. No one wants to touch them. It's going to grow 36%, 36.5%. By the way, that's up from 35.5% last week. And if you look at the top 10 weights, if you think 24 hours ago, you couldn't give away any of these stocks. And this is where the earnings growth is going to be next year. So Amazon, we already have our exposure through Baba, which I think is going to be juiced because the dollar is going to drop. Tesla is not for me just because of uh, the earnings, the cash flow profile, but you can make it. It's, it's just not for me. McDonald's, Home Depot, you can give away. That's sold off a ton on the housing. Nike sold off a ton on China. Starbucks sold off a ton on China. Uh, and these are companies that we've talked about uh, that were down huge. Target, eh, not for me. Uh, but probably going to work, uh, and booking holdings could, could be a monster too. So uh, it just goes to show the things that no one wants right now based on emotion because they they felt pain. When you step back and look at reality, that's where you want to be. Uh, and even some of the financials like, um, you know, City down here, no one wants it, uh, Wells Fargo, and some of the others, I think they'll do okay. Uh, and some of the industrials, consumer services, all these things that people are selling down uh, are going to be interesting next year. And all the things that people can't get enough of, like materials and energy, I think they're going to be uh, disappoint people next year is my expectation. So um, so that's that. Let's get to these five stocks. And I'll just quickly show, it's not obviously going to be a comprehensive review of these five for my friend, but um, it'll give you an idea how I quickly go through things. And uh, you may find it helpful. So A-G-I-L. Looks like there are a bunch of small caps here. Um, okay, so this is something I would take a look at because I like special situations and I like things that are beaten down. Uh, the thing that's missing for me <clears throat> is I don't like companies that have been in business for two years or public for two years because I don't have enough data to determine how do they operate through cycles. And I'm not good at guessing around, you know, what's what's the next big thing. I like betting on sure things when they're out of favor. Uh, so for me, 
it's an automatic probably pass just because of how I do evaluation. But I want to take a look at it because it doesn't mean it's a it's a no for everyone because uh, it could be a great business. So, you know, if you look at the top line here, uh, revenues are up from 100 million, 110 to 170 million. Uh, so they're growing, but they're losing a ton of money. Their operating expenses, so they're negative $25 million of EBITDA last 12 months. Net income is negative. So this is a long duration story. This is one that's losing money, uh, which is a no-no for me, generally speaking, and certainly in this type of environment. Um, you know, they are growing revenue, so that's what has people potentially in the stock. Uh, you look at the balance sheet, you know, they, they've got very little cash too. Uh, 11 million, it looks like. Cash flow negative, cash from operations are negative and getting worse. Uh, so, uh, you know, unless there's some edge and then you look at return on capital, they're just destroying capital. Return on equity, they're destroying equity. So this is a stock where they say, oh, we're going to do the next hula hoop and digital transformation services in U.S. and Latin America, management services comprising this, this, this. So, you know, we just on a financial basis, would I ever buy this business? No. Okay. So you'd have to know something about this growth trajectory and guess that what they're saying that this is going to persist in perpetuity. Uh, and then you might have a monster, but for me, it's a pass. That doesn't mean it's a bad company. I'm just telling you how I look at things. So AIRG is the next one. All right, so this, I, I love this chart because it looks like it's cyclical. It looks like it's beat down. It, it's, it's uh, you know, $8, $7 down from 29 So this is kind of interesting. Uh, A-I-R-G. Let's put it in and see how the business is doing. Okay. Okay, so revenues have basically been flat. They're 66 in the last 12 months. They are were 60 in 2018. Uh, their margins are deteriorating. They were 47% in 2017. They're 37% today, gross margin. Uh, they are losing money also uh, and losing more and more every year for the last three years. And cash flow negative, cash from operations. So deteriorating margins and losing cash, uh, two no-nos for me. Uh, the return on capital is, you know, they're, they're destroying capital. So now you look at the business and you say, what do they do? They design, develop antenna products for original equipment and design manufactured vertical markets, chipset vendors, service providers, value-added resellers, okay. Usually I find with all these companies, they have one common denominator. I can read their description and still not know what the hell they do for a living. Um, wireless networking, range of devices. So again, this is one of those stories where you got to read their pitch and how like they're going to say, well, I know we've been doing horrible for the last decade, uh, but we're going to hockey stick overnight for no reason. And that goes back to the first slide where high return on capital businesses tend to stay high return on capital businesses because they have a moat, they have pricing power, and they have something unique. These, by the way, they're burning cash are telling me they have no moat. They probably have nothing unique. That could change tomorrow. Don't get me wrong. I do like buying something like this down here versus up here. 
but I just don't buy things that lose money like this and hope for the best unless I have some edge or some historical context that, you know, maybe a few years ago they were just generating cash hand over fist and conditions are going to go back to what they were. And it was a once in a hundred year event, like a pandemic that crushed their business. But with this company, uh, you know, for me, it's a pass. It doesn't mean it's a bad business or, or it's uninvestable. I just have to do a lot more work, but I'm not a guess what's next or hope for the best coming later. I have to see some evidence that they have worked through cycles in the past, and this just doesn't give me enough data. The next one is DVAX. Okay, let's pull that up. Okay, so there's no rhyme or reason here. It's kind of recovered from the pandemic. Uh, let's see what they do. Biopharmaceutical company. Okay, love biotech, hate individual. I will only play biotech in a basket. All biotech is is a lottery ticket. If you buy a basket of lottery tickets, you're going to win over time because the ones that work are 10 baggers and the ones that don't are you know minus one baggers. And if you have a basket of them, and I like just an ETF sector basket, you can really, it's very hard to have an edge in this business. So to buy a one-off because some analyst says their drug is going to get approved and it's going to be a 10-bagger, like, good luck with that. If that analyst had any track record of picking the magic lottery ticket, they wouldn't be an analyst. So they'd be managing money. So um, uh, right off the bat, I mean, unless this thing's just magically generating a ton of cash, I'm going to just hard pass. Um, Okay, so it is generating cash. Um, yeah, I mean, they're hockey sticking. So they must have had something approved here. Uh, this one definitely warrants looking into it more, uh, although the cash from operations has dropped off. It's halved. Um, they are starting to return on capital. So what is their drug? Commercializing novel vaccines in the U.S. HEP, hepatitis B vaccine for prevention of infection, hepatitis B. So this is probably worth looking into if you want to guess what's next and see if their mode is durable and their revenues are going to continue to hockey stick like this. Maybe you have a stock that has been a failure for multi-decades. All of a sudden, they finally hit it. But again... I, I would want to benefit from a company like this in the context of owning, you know, it, it just looks like over and over they get people excited and then it just rolls over. This is like, a, it's almost like a management disease. Like, like they buy their own hype, get everyone in, and then they F it up, buy their own hype, get everyone in, F it up over and over and over. But maybe this time's different. Uh, for me, it's a pass because I won't buy any one-off biotechs ever. It's just... I don't do it. I, I, I buy the sector because in aggregate, I'm going to win on that over time. Uh, Cornet, K-R-N-T. Okay. Okay, so this one's come down from 181 to 20. You got my interest, uh, but it hasn't been around long enough. 2016, okay, K-R-N-T. So with all of these, they, every single one of them could work, but you better have some edge that's not in the market. 
that gives you confidence that these things are, are big turnaround stories. Because just looking objectively at the financials, here's another one, it's just losing money. I mean, um, and getting worse. So, do they ever respect equity? No, they've never. They just have a consistent history of destroying capital. So, explain to me why that's going to change. Their gross margin is declining. Um, so, unless they got new management or some new miracle product, what do they do? They design and market digital printing solutions for fashion apparel, home decor. I mean, this sounds like a me too. Does this sound like it has pricing power, ink solutions? Um yeah. So again, you have to have an edge on this uh, internally, but like financially, I'm, I'm just in, I'm, I'm a pass. That doesn't mean that it can't work. And it, um, uh, I know these these were given to my friend by someone else, uh, so he just asked me to take a quick look at them. Um, so on each one of these, I would go to the person who gave them and say, "Well, what's your edge? Are like what?" Are you just buying it because it's down? Or are you buying it because it's a durable business and it has some plan to get to like earnings power? Because it just looks like a lot of hope and dreams for these with no evidence of ever doing anything good for owners. And that's all we care about, right? So um, I think this is probably going to be helpful for a lot of people just seeing this. So I'm glad I wouldn't do it for anyone else, but I'm glad he sent it over. Uh, OPRX. Okay, so this one's come down from 99 to 15. What do they do? Let's just see, OPRX. So they are growing revenues, they are profitable, their margins are increasing. Um, they're still losing money. And growing cash on their balance sheet, but like cash from investing. So they're making bad investments. They're basically cash negative. They have any history of generating a return on capital? No. Uh, so unless you have new management, it's just a disease in that company. They, uh, so what is this? A digital health company provides various solutions to life science organizations. Products and applications include financial messaging. Like, who cares? Like a DM? Uh, virtual patient support center. Okay, that could be good. Healthcare, I like that. Access to sample vouchers, copay. This sounds like a me too. Like this doesn't sound like it has pricing power or some embedded tough switching costs. Um, but again, this is a minute. So go to the person who gave it to you and say, tell me why this is going to change. Why is this thing going to start earning money? You know, how can this thing earn three bucks a share in the next five years? So it's worth $30 or $40 or $50, or is it just a hype thing? In which case, just because a stock goes up, if you buy something on the basis of faulty analysis and it goes up, um, consider it a loss because the next time you do that, you're going to get your shirt ripped off so uh, or lose your shirt. So um, um, I, I, I think that most people will find this useful. Uh, oh, and one more, QNST. Look, businesses are there to make us money. And if they can't make money, they better have a really damn good story as to when the money's coming. Because other than that, talk to the hand. Um, 
All right, so this one's down from 25 to 12. Let's take a look. Okay, revenues are, uh, they've fallen off in the last couple of years, but let's see with, uh, but they're, they've been losing money all the time anyway. So even when, so they just lose, lose, lose. Uh, they're generating cash from operations. They're losing it in investing and in financing. Um, where's their margins? Gross margins are declining from double digits to high single digits. What do they do? Online performance marketing company that provides customer acquisition services for clients. I mean, this sounds like me too. Qualified clicks, leads, calls, applications. Again, no pricing power. Um, so just tell me why you're gonna start growing and making money when you failed to do so historically, and I'm all ears. Um, but for me, it's just a pass. That doesn't mean it's not going back to 25. It doesn't mean, you know, it, it doesn't mean that with any of these, I'm just telling you why I invest or pass in certain companies and um, none of these have passed my screening. And, you know, the best investing is business of subtracting. There's thousands of opportunities. The key is to only try to deal with the best value per every dollar that you're gonna put out. So a lot of these businesses seem to be me too with the exception of that drug company. So I'd want to know about like, why is that drug going to keep going versus failing every few years, like everything else you've ever done um, uh, in that company. So uh, so that's how we think about it. Um, I think the way to do it is to go back to this person that gave the six and have them walk you through why the future is going to be different than the past, because in all these businesses, the past has been uh, basically uh, persistent failure. Um, and then... Um, you know, move the money more into things, things that'll work. So uh, with that said, I hope you all found that helpful today. Um, it was a good change in direction today. It looks like we got some more follow through on the S&P, which is good to see. Uh, rates are coming. Wow. The two years collapsed from 271 to, I'm sorry, 471 to 430, 10 years at 382. Um, and um we're on our way. So have a great one. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now.